thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to a special podcast from The Naked Scientists, containing some of the highlights of National Pathology Week 2010, held by the Royal College of Pathologists. I'm Ben Valsler. This year's National Pathology Week was themed around the building blocks of life, so coming up I'll take you behind the scenes and into the pathology labs at Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital, and we'll explore the world of veterinary pathology and the role that veterinary pathologists play in understanding animal developmental disorders. You can find all of the podcasts from the last three years of National Pathology Week online at thenakedscientists.com slash pathology. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at The Naked Scientists, you can email chris at thenakedscientists.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, or join us on our Facebook page. You'll find that at thenakedscientists.com slash Facebook. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. Great Ormond Street Hospital is a world-renowned children's hospital in London with very close ties to University College London's Institute of Child Health. For National Pathology Week, sixth form students from Furs Platt Senior School were invited into the pathology labs to get to meet some pathologists and discover the role of pathology in children's medical care. Dr David Wells, the lead laboratory manager, explained just why it was that the labs had opened their doors. I think really because it's to highlight what pathology does in general and also being that the, the uh, National Pathology Week theme was about mother and child, it really was to highlight what we do that's different from other pathology departments around the UK. I think really what makes us special, if you like, at Great Ormond Street, is what we do in terms of the mother and baby, particularly the baby, and that's, that's really want to highlight what we do. So what is it about Great Ormond Street? It has a, a world reputation as being a, an excellent hospital for children. The image most people have of that is, of course, of the frontline clinical care of children. What is it about the behind-closed-doors pathology that stands out? Um, what stands out is I'll probably... Our are link to that clinical expertise. So we've got the expertise in the hospital, on the wards, seeing these patients day in, day out. And then we've got the scientists behind the scenes, if you like, really piecing it all together, relying on the expertise that they have and building up, together with these clinicians who've got that expertise from seeing those patients and bringing it all together. You know, clearly, we don't just see patients from Great Ormond Street. We're dealing with patients from across the UK, and we bring that, that expertise right together into delivering a, a, what I hope is an excellent pathology service. One of the things you have been trying to explain to the students who came along today is the range of careers and roles that you can have working behind doors here. Could you just give me one or two examples of the sorts of people you need? Well, the sort of people we need, well, it's difficult because actually we, we need 
every sort of stage of a scientist's career. So we need those beginners, those people who are learning the ropes to come in and fulfil and take over as our people progress and retire eventually. Um, and we need people to come in at different levels to give us those different skills that those different levels have. So, for example, we have biomedical scientists who are graduate entry scientists who are trained on the job once they've got their degree to deliver the frontline, if you like, pathology services 24 hours a day, seven days a week, delivering those results day in, day out to a high level of, uh, of quality, but with their clinical acumen as well to make sure those results mean something. And on the flip side, we've also got our clinical scientists who are there to really engage a bit more with the clinical team to actually have a bit more of a discussion and a debate about what those results mean to that patient. And we're very good at producing results that say this result is an albumin of 36 but actually what does that mean to my patient is equally important. And both those people add to that. One gives you the results and what it means in that context of that blood sample, and the other one gives you what it means in context to that patient. You also took those students on a tour of some of the facilities here. What sorts of things were you showing them? Well, we wanted to show them all the aspects of what chemical pathology here at Great Ormond Street is about, um, but also what they would see in other, other laboratories across the UK, because they're all the same. And it's really looking at the, the way we use technology to deliver different services. So downstairs in our uh, blood sciences lab, we've got the uh, highly automated, highly efficient, very rapid turnaround laboratory service that gives them the results they need that quickly, rapidly, in the time they need, because some of those patients are being managed in intensive care and they need their results back nice and quick. And then on the flip side, looking at the really manual techniques, techniques that take days on end to kind of be, you know, start an assay up one, one day and finish it off the next day and then look at results over a period of a few days um, to show really what the range there is for scientists to do, but also what the range there is that we do um, to deliver that excellence in healthcare. And just finally, what did you get out of today? Now, obviously, there are learning objectives for students and it's very nice for the students to see the range of careers, to see how important all this work is but you surely have got a busy enough job anyway we have yeah and i think one of the one of the things that in my role as sort of the, the lead laboratory manager is I'm, i've got not only an eye to what happens now but also what an eye to what's happening in the future and we need to engage people to bring them into pathology to actually come and replace the people who leave replace the people who retire and and grow our you know grow our new scientists into working the way that we work in pathology and really it's an opportunity for us to take stock about what we do and sell ourselves as a profession, as professions as well, and say, look what we do, look how well we do it, why don't you come and join a team and, and, and do that with us? It gives us an opportunity to sit there and say, what is it we do day in, day out? This is what we do day in, day out. Because you've got to explain it to someone else in that clear terms. And actually it's nice, it makes you feel, yep, I do do a valuable job. It's very easy to, to get bogged down in paperwork and in sums, which is not in my job nowadays, but... That's what we do, and actually realise we're doing it for a reason, for the patients in the day. David Wells. The tour of the labs gave the students a chance to see a range of scientists working with a range of different tools to provide the test results that the hospital needs. Senior biomedical chemist Shazu explained what happens when they receive a blood sample for testing. We receive a, a sample in a form. So it's very important, the first few steps that we do, we make sure that the sample and the form, they match in terms of their name, uh, the hospital number and date of birth. We need three forms of ID to accept the sample. If, if any of these three forms are missing, we have to reject the sample. So once we're happy it's labelled correctly, we centrifuge it so they come as whole blood straight from the patient. You separate the whole blood and the actual liquid 
component of the blood. So that's the plasma. So this is what we're interested in biochemistry. We analyse the plasma and we look for the chemistries inside there. So once it's spun, we take the sample and the form over to our main analyzers. Once we bring the samples on here, we put it on and we load it on here. There's a barcode reader. Once it reads a barcode reader, it knows what test to do, uh, which patient it's for, and then it starts analysing. A lot of the analysis is based on sort of basic um, absorbance readings, so it's really straightforward uh, science. But obviously they've done it in, in a way where it's automated, so you can do loads of the tests. If you try to do it by hand, it will take forever. So it's literally taking the sample, putting it onto a uh, dry slide, letting a, a reaction happen under incubated com- conditions, and then checking for colour change, checking for absorbance. You relate that to a, um, a concentration of a particular chemistry that you're interested in. As well as the broad range of tests carried out, Professor Simon Heels brought us on to the topic of metabolic disorders. My contribution um, this week, I hope, has been to um, educate young potential scientists about the discipline of pathology. And the subsection within that pathology discipline is the area of inherited metabolic disorders. Because I think people vaguely have heard about inherited diseases. You don't really get immersed in those diseases until a member of your family gets affected with one. But, you know, collectively about one in 500 babies will be born in the UK with an inherited disease. So it does have the potential to impact on a lot of people's lives immediate family and beyond. And so hopefully one of the aims is to raise awareness of this group of disorders, an important group of disorders, raise also awareness that it's not necessarily a dreadful um, diagnosis. It's it's, it's a challenging diagnosis for the families, but actually because of the way research has gone on, the way we collaborate with each other in laboratories, we can actually develop very good treatments, not perfect treatments, which can dramatically change the outcome for a child and also for the family. So it isn't necessarily an absolute dreadful piece of news. It's still a hard piece of news to um, deal with, but actually for some of these diseases, I have to stress some of them, not all of them, there is a little glimmer of hope in that we can actually introduce treatments which can have a dramatic effect in improving that child's um, life. So what role does Great Ormond Street Hospital play in identifying and treating these inherited diseases? Well, Great Ormond Street, I think if you ask people in the UK, name me a um, famous children's hospital, it's it's going to be up on the list, you know. People are going to immediately think the Great Ormond Street. Great Ormond Street has this reputation that, well, if every other hospital or doctor can't help my child, Great Ormond Street will be there to help me. The group of disorders I work on are known as the orphan diseases, and I think we all understand what an orphan is. An orphan is somebody who hasn't got a parent. And I think one of the roles that I'm very proud of about Great Ormond Street's chemical pathology is, in a way, we become parents to those diseases. From the lab point of view, we're investing our time and effort into those diseases. From the hospital's point of view, the doctors are work, working tirelessly to try and improve the outlook and outcome for these patients. So these orphan diseases, in a way, have a home, and I suppose that's what I see the role of Great Ormond Street in my area. It's providing a home for orphans in the form of orphan diseases. So could you give us a specific example of one of these diseases and and how we might be able to go about diagnosing and treating it? Okay, well, the group of disorders that I get particularly um, involved in from a scientific point of view are those diseases that affect the normal functioning of the brain. And there's lots of diseases that can actually affect the ability of the brain to perform normally. The group I work on are um, the group of disorders um, that stop one brain cell talking to another. That's a neurotransmitter. 
and there are groups of children that are born without the ability to make those neurotransmitters, and they, you know, they will have a problem moving and developing. But because we have techniques developed in this hospital and elsewhere, we're able to identify those chemicals that perhaps are missing and then think about the chemistry that's involved to then try and correct that defect. And indeed, we do correct that um, defect. And that can dramatically turn around um, that child's ability to survive out in the, in the real world. Uh, but there are other diseases there that are still a huge challenge, working on similar pathways, but we can't quite crack what's going wrong there. We can't quite work out what's the best treatment options. And that's where the research comes in, because some of those diseases are newsworthy, headline-worthy, where we can get big treatment responses. But there are others there that still need a lot of work on them. But, you know, I think we can get there with the right uh, mindset with regards to funding, etc. And, of course, both the clinical side of it and the research side of it relies on having a very good team of talented and capable pathologists. Absolutely. I mean... The need for a very talented group of scientists in chemical pathology is absolutely paramount. You can't, the doctor will make a very good guess of what's wrong with that patient. Yeah, and it's more than the guess. He's got tens of years of service behind him and what, or her, what makes him think that patient or she thinks that patient's got a particular disease. But there's such an overlap clinically between one disease and another. So you've got to do the chemical test. And that's, then these chemical tests are done and the body's not simple. There are many, many, many chemicals present in our bodily fluids. You've got to be able to separate those out and then identify which one's the, the culprit and then work out which one is um, perhaps disease-causing because it's deficient or there's too much of it and then start to entertain the idea of treatment where you go back to the doctor and start to have a proper dialogue about the various options. And then we've got the monitoring as well. So it's not a matter of patient comes in, we do one test, patient goes out with a diagnosis. There's a huge amount of um, talent that we have to draw upon and a huge amount of equipment that we have to draw upon as well. How do you feel about seeing groups of students taking time out of school to come in and have a look behind the scenes, behind closed doors at what goes on here? I think it's phenomenal. I think it's fantastic. Um, I wish I had the opportunity when I was uh, in the sixth form. I might have worked a bit harder. Currently, I've got three teenagers, and I think we're very focused on exam results, perhaps too much on getting through the hoops. And I think what I hope we've done today is to show relevance to why you're learning those subjects. Uh, All my children have studied chemistry. I think they find that the most challenging Sometimes they say it's a bit boring, but actually when you actually see the chemistry applied, they heard about mass spectrometers today, we've got a lot of them here, and they make a, they're essential for the diagnosis of patients. They've heard how understanding the chemistry can actually lead to a dramatic improvement in a child that we presented um, to them. So I think they prob- perhaps some of them became more engaged with their subjects than they would have ever done spending a day at, um, at school. To better understand the tests run to diagnose and monitor metabolic diseases, Simon took us down to meet clinical scientist Helen Frunty. We employ various chromatography techniques to look at metabolic disease. And these patients have a blockage in metabolic pathways which causes a build-up of certain metabolites. When we interpret those test results, we can figure out where the blockage is happening Mainly, we look at amino acids in plasma, and we look at urine organic acids as well. Those are the two main tests that we do. And these two machines behind you here are what we call high-pressure lipid chromatography machines, and we use these to look at plasma amino acids. They all have different functional groups, so they all have slightly different chemical properties. And in that way, we can separate 
the compounds from one another by exploiting some of those properties. In this particular technique, we use polarity in order to separate the compounds. So you've got the most polar amino acids come out first, and then the least polar ones come out at the end. And so they're all well separated from each other, and we can also measure how much of the amino acids is in the blood. In particular disorders, you get higher levels of certain amino acids or lower levels um, compared to a normal reference range for the whole population. So that's the way that we can diagnose certain amino acid diseases. So this machine here behind you as well, we use high-pressure lipid chromatography to look at different sugars. And we look in urine and fecal samples. So in urine, we're looking at different carbohydrate disorders. And in fecal samples, we're looking at absorption and malabsorption disorders or things like lactose intolerance. To detect the sugars, we use electrochemical detection. So because sugars can be ionized at high pH, then we can pass them through the cell and they produce a voltage which will give us a response. And that's how we measure those. This is an example of urine amino acid analysis by thin layer chromatography. So in this particular instance, we use cellulose acetate sheets and we spot the urine here. We put it in a particular solvent tray and it runs in one direction. We turn it round and we run it in the other direction. So it separates the compounds in two directions, which is called two-dimensional thin layer chromatography. And then looking at the intensity of the spots, we can say kind of semi-quantitatively whether certain amino acids are raised in the urine. And that can give us information about the renal function and also there's particular transport disorders of amino acids which show up in the urine as opposed to the plasma. Helen Fronty explaining some of the tests run for metabolic diseases. This is a special edition of The Naked Scientists with the highlights from this year's National Pathology Week. Still to come, we hear about the role of veterinary pathologists, but now we return to Great Ormond Street Hospital to explore the importance of catching diseases before they start to show symptoms. I spoke to Dr Katie Bainbridge, the head of newborn screening. The whole point of newborn screening is to pick up babies who have one of the five disorders which we screened for, which benefit from early detection and treatment. I mean, we improve the outcome, reduce morbidity and mortality. So what are the conditions we're currently screening for? We're currently screening for five conditions. Um, PKU, which is phenylketonuria, which is a disorder of phenylalanine metabolism. Cystic fibrosis, which is a disorder of lung function and also digestion. Sickle cell disease, which is a disorder of red blood cells and haemoglobin sickling. We also screen for congenital hypothyroidism, which is um, a deficiency of an enzyme called thyroxin. And something called MCAD, and MCAD stands for medium chain acyl-CoA dehydrogenase. Um, and this is an enzyme that's involved in the metabolism of fats and the utilisation of fats as an energy source. These all are fairly serious illnesses for somebody to have. Why can't we just tell from symptoms? Why do we need to do the screening? Well, for many of these disorders, there is an asymptomatic phase. So babies can appear completely normal. Meanwhile, there is 
the accumulation of, for example, toxins which are doing damage um, and can mean that the brain is not developing properly. Um, And by the time they actually exhibit symptoms and we manage to diagnose the disorders, they can actually do irreversible damage which we can't undo by treating the babies at that stage. And have they been a success so far? Have we seen, have we caught enough of these cases to really see a difference? Oh, it's definitely been a success. Um, Traditionally, um, we've always screened for PKU and congenital hypothyroidism, and all the babies that we've picked up have benefited from treatment and have lived normal lives because we've been able to treat them early. And that contrasts with prior to newborn screening, where they were, in many cases, in institutions um, because of the neurological damage and couldn't lead normal lives. And we know that for some of the disorders that we've only recently been screening for, such as sickle cell disease cystic fibrosis we're already managing to change the course of the disease and although we can't cure it we can improve the outcome and it means that they're healthier and they're probably going to live longer Um, and for MCAD where um, in the past if we didn't know that these babies had MCAD they could suddenly become very seriously ill and even die we know that by picking them up early we can make sure an emergency regime is implemented so that we can minimize that and we're definitely seeing an improvement already. And how do the pathology labs here at Great Ormond Street Hospital fit into the national process of screening? Um, So newborn screening is a a national programme. We screen um, UK-wide. There are 16 newborn screening um, laboratories and Great Ormond Street Hospital Newborn Screening Lab is the largest of those. We screen um, over 125,000 babies a year. We actually screen any baby that's born in North London, Hertfordshire, Essex and parts of Bedfordshire. And what's the future for newborn screening? We've been doing it for 50, 60 years now, but there must be more conditions that we could hopefully catch. Um, Yes, there are likely to be lots of other conditions that might benefit from newborn screening. Um, And certainly other countries screen for a lot more disorders than the five that we screen for. But here in the UK, we have a newborn screening committee um, which assess all of these disorders based on internationally agreed criteria. And they look at things like whether there is an asymptomatic phase, um, what treatments are available and and what the potential benefits might be from implementing early treatment and also whether there are suitable tests and the cost effectiveness of screening and they're considering a number of disorders at the moment Um, so I'm sure that in the future we'll be screening many more disorders than the five we screen at the moment. Katie Bainbridge. Simon Heels showed the students the newborn screening lab in action. This is our newborn screening room so Katie told you talked to you about newborn screening and the blood spots, and this machine is drawing up the liquid from that patient's blood spot and injecting it onto this machine here. Now this machine is called a mass spectrometer. A mass spectrometer, I think, in simple terms, can be thought of as a weighing machine. Every chemical weighs something different. We all know the periodic table and how things weigh differently, and I know you know molecules have a mass. What a mass spectrometer does, it separates the chemicals based on how heavy they are. That's all it's doing. For £250,000, it's an incredibly expensive weighing machine, but that's what it is. It's actually separating out different things that they weigh differently. The metabolic pathway took one chemical to another chemical. It changed something on the chemistry, added a hydroxyl group. So it's going to weigh something more than it did before it was converted. And we know how much you should all normally have. And if we go above that level, then we know there's a problem. And we know that patient needs to have the treatment. You might think they're being very greedy to have nearly a million pounds of the mass spectrometers in here. The reason we've got it is 
We're doing a thousand blood spots a day. Can you imagine what would happen if that machine broke down? All those patients wouldn't be diagnosed. So we have two machines for a number of reasons. One is we've got backup. If that machine breaks down, another one can immediately be switched on. And also we can run two sets of samples at the same time so that every child gets diagnosed as soon as possible and then the treatment starts on. So this is a very clean area. Not, there's not a lot of scientists here. So different from that lab where I showed you where there were people pipetting away. They weren't actors. They were real scientists that work here every day. This is much more um, automated and it's all done by robotics because this is like thousands of samples a day. That's about 10 or 20 samples a day, but there's much more work involved in running those smaller samples for an individual than it is over here. Speaking for myself, I felt honoured to be invited behind closed doors at a wonderful hospital that I've known about and respected all of my life. Jill Heels, the head of science at First Platt Senior School, explained what it was that the students had got out of it. All they get to do is sit in classrooms and they do the odd practical and they do loads of theory and they don't really know what goes on in the outside world because lots of them haven't got parents that are in science at all but they want to do science later on but when they say science they've got no idea where they want to go, go to from that. All of the children out there are doing chemistry. Quite a few of them are doing um, biology. So I just wanted to introduce them to one kind of career path or an, an idea of several career paths they could go along just so that they, they've got an idea of where they're heading. Some of them are year 13, so they're already applying to university. And several of those are going to be doing, um, applying to, to do chemistry or biomedical sciences. So for them, it's maybe given them a little bit more to write about when they're filling in the university applications. And for the year 12s that are here... They've got no idea what they want to do, so hopefully it'll give them an insight. Great Ormond Street Hospital has an international reputation, but we're looking at not really the public face of it. We're not looking at the immediate patient care. We're looking at the stuff that goes on behind the scenes. Why do you think that would be a useful experience, a useful sight for them to see? Because because people don't realise what goes on behind the scenes. As one lad just said, he didn't expect the hospital to be like this at all. I said, these are the doors that you're never allowed to go through. And they're also surprised that, you know, when a scientist does a test for a disease, I think it's like dead easy, you know, give a blood sample... They've got no idea what happens. They just think that suddenly you get, you get an answer to, to a disease. And going round has helped them realise that, you know, for maybe to diagnose one disease, you've maybe got to run about 10 or 15 tests to be able to do that. So it's been a really good insight for that for them. It's been a really good insight for them to see how many different kinds of people work behind those closed doors to, to help the, you know, the medics on the front line to give that, that proper diagnosis to the patient. So, so it's been brilliant, I think, for, for them from that point of view. And the students explained what it was that stood out to them. It's a lot different how I expected it to be. I thought just experiencing it, really, because you see a lot about it on the telly and what everything, but when you're actually here, it's quite different. Mostly the amount of testing gone into just a single, like, diagnosis or something for a patient, that's kind of surprising. I thought it would just be, like, much quicker. Just, like, the doctor just look at you and go, this is what's wrong with you, instead of going through all these tests. Students from First Platt Senior School on what surprised them about their tour of the pathology labs at Great Ormond Street Hospital. Laying the facts bare, the Naked Scientists. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. This is The Naked Scientists with a special edition focusing on the highlights of National Pathology Week 2010. This year, the Natural History Museum hosted two Nature Live events with Alan Williams, Professor of Veterinary Diagnostic Pathology at Cambridge University. 
Many people would not immediately associate pathology with veterinary medicine, but pathologists play just as vital a role there as they do in human medicine. I asked Professor Williams how the two differ. How does it differ? Well, in many ways it doesn't. Pathology is a study of disease, and the sorts of processes that cause disease in animals are very similar to those that cause disease in human beings. So the the big difference is that medical pathologists deal with people and veterinary pathologists deal with everything else. Uh, For medical pathology, it's a very long process from getting your initial medical training through to specialising in in pathology. Is it the same for veterinary science? Yes, it's very similar. Depending on which veterinary school you you attend, it's either a five- or a six-year training to, to get your veterinary degree and it's then a minimum of three years further training after that to get a specialist qualification uh, as a pathologist. But, of course, that's not the end of the story because you've got your working life ahead of you and you're more experienced to gain. But the sort of official training, if you like, is your degree plus at least three years after that. You mentioned that there are only so many biological mechanisms that can go wrong to cause disease. Is there a lot that we can learn about human disease from veterinary pathology? Oh, absolutely. The way I think about it is that in evolutionary terms, if you had a million different diseases and a million different responses, each one tailored to a particular disease, what would you do with a millionth and oneth disease? It just doesn't make sense. So the tissues and cells have developed a series of generic responses to a wide range of insults. And so that repertoire of of responses is quite limited. And human beings are but another mammal. So one would anticipate that mammalian responses, by and large, and I know it's being a bit simplistic, are mammalian responses. So you, you can learn an awful lot. And if you think about it, and I know the area is slightly controversial, but the use of animals in medical research to you know, study m- diseases of people and treatments for those diseases, of course, is a well-established... Uh, and if, if animals weren't similar, then why would you be using them in the first place? Touching on the almost generic nature of some of this, you've had the opportunity to look at not just the traditional veterinary medicine animals, cats, dogs, mm-hmm. perhaps the old horse. You've looked at some really very exotic animals. Yeah, I've been very fortunate uh, in that respect to have those sorts of opportunities, from elephants to crocodiles. And, of course, reptiles respond to disease in a slightly different way to mammals. That's another level of complication uh, in in the whole thing. Uh, Big cats, again, it's a bit simplistic to say a tiger is just an overgrown domestic cat, but the sorts of diseases they get are similar, the sorts of responses the tissues might do. Being a, a pathologist, just as being a, a practitioner, a medical practitioner, you're trying to problem-solve all the time. Here is a problem, what has caused it, and you have to keep working backwards till you can get to the, really to the, the root of things. So it's a big problem-solving exercise, and you, you answer a sort of certain set of que- ask a certain set of questions to try and get the information to allow you to provide the answers. And just finally, what made you want to agree to join in with National Pathology Week? Do you think it's important that we try and inspire the next generation into this sort of research? Partly partly that. I'm rather passionate about pathology. Um, I guess as a teenager, if I look back, I was always interested in how things went wrong uh, rather than, you know, nature and evolution has been a wonderful thing, but nothing's perfect. And that's where my fascination was. 
And I, I just have a feeling that uh, public at large do not really understand disease and how things go wrong. And so what, what I was hoping to contribute to National Pathology Week was a small piece in a very large jigsaw of trying to promote understanding of disease and how illness works. Because if you can understand how that's happening to you or whatever, you're not so lost in the whole, or, or even afraid of disease. If you can understand something, then you can rationalise it and cope with it. Alan Williams explaining how pathologists help to take away the fear of disease. Alan presented two of the Natural History Museum's Nature Live events, bringing a selection of bones, tissues and even a box of brains to the museum's Attenborough studio. The museum very kindly gave us permission to include some of the event in this podcast. So here's Nature Live presenter Aoife Glass. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Nature Live here in the Attenborough studio. My name is Aoife, and I'm going to be your host for today's event. Thank you very much for coming along and joining us for a rather special Nature Live event today. Nature Live is a programme of events that happens here in the Attenborough studio in the museum pretty much every day. And normally what we do is it gives you the chance to see some of the amazing specimens that we have behind the scenes here in the museum and meet some of the people who work here. But today we're doing something a little bit different. So I'd like to introduce our veterinary pathologist Alan Williams. Thank you very much for joining us here today, Alan. Thank you. And today we're going to be finding out all about basically what it is that you do. Yeah. But to start us off, what exactly is a pathologist and what's a veterinary pathologist? Pathology is the science and study of disease, things that go wrong. And a pathologist, our job is to work out what has gone wrong and the reasons why it has gone wrong, and then potentially what we can do to stop it happening again, some point in the future, to other animals. If it's a group of animals and one animal is sick, others might have the same disease but not look sick just yet. So there's lots of things we can do. And as a vet, uh, obviously I work with animals rather than, well, except for today, rather than with people. This is part of National Pathology Week. It is indeed. What's, what's that all about? I, well, pathologists, we're the sort of the backroom boys. And if you take your animal to a vet, you see a, a clinician either for vaccination, to stop it getting certain diseases, or because it's got something wrong with it. It has some disease. Uh, if the vet isn't sure straight away what it is, he can take some sort of sample and send it to me, and I'll look at it and I'll tell him, or her, what the problem is. And I prefer to do that whilst the animal is still alive, because obviously I can help that particular animal and help the vet treat that animal. Sadly, uh, some animals don't make it. Uh, and they come to me after they have died, usually with a question of what was the cause of death. And so that's some of the things I have brought with me to share with you, different things that happen. Uh, all these specimens have been donated, or their animals were donated to me with written permission to use for educational purposes. So all these things are here with their owner's permission, and... If they weren't safe, I would not be allowed to bring them into this studio. So you feel free to handle them. They're all nice and safe. It's going to be really interesting to have a look at... You, you hear about some of the different diseases that things mm. get. To actually see what that actually physically does to the animal in question is going yeah. to be, I think, quite fascinating. Yeah. Now, Alan, pathologists do a number of different things, but why is, why is veterinary pathology important? OK, so what comes back to what does a pathologist do? I've just talks to you about making a diagnosis, finding out what the 
illness or disease is. The prognosis is what's the future likelihood for that animal. So if there's been a small lump and the vet has taken it off and I look at it and say, it's benign, it's nothing to worry about, the prognosis for that animal is very good. If it's a rampant cancer, then the prognosis is not so good. My job is to make that call, is, is to decide what it is. Understanding the disease, of course, it then influences how the animal's looked after, the care it needs, the treatment it needs, what the likely response. Some cancers respond to treatment better than others. For me to say, oh, this is cancer, is not good enough. I have to say what type it is. Otherwise, you're giving misleading information. Um, I also check on that, make sure that clinicians get their, what they think is right is right. I have to deal, occasionally I deal with the police. They bring things to me, wanting to know why such an animal died unexpectedly. And I do research the causes of disease and trying to advance our knowledge. I think we all recognise that some animals get diseases that they can pass to us. We can actually also pass diseases to animals. And certainly a large part of my job with farm animals is making sure that whatever they've got is not a risk to human health. And further than that, my research actually, most of my research nowadays is on Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. Animals don't get Alzheimer's disease, not really. Uh, they certainly don't get Parkinson's disease. The way disease works in animals is very similar to the way disease works in people. There's only so many things that can go wrong. Do animals get the same kind of diseases that we get? Pretty much, yes. Um, so the sorts of diseases that any tissue, any individual can get, can almost be sort of categorised. Trauma, tumours, infections, development that goes a little bit wrong. These sorts of things, the same sort of categories in animals as people. Is there anything anyone would like to ask or know a bit more about? Have you ever done anything on sea creatures? Sea creatures, um, yes, I've done... Worked with pathology on fish. I've done pathology of seals. <coughs> Haven't done a whale yet. I'd quite like to do one of those. But you've got to work very quickly because they go off quite quickly. So you put a big peg on your nose while you're doing them. Yeah, I've heard they, they can be quite smelly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I remember talking to some of the guys who work behind the scenes here at the museum on our giant squid, and they were saying when they were preparing that, they've never smelt anything so bad in yeah. their lives. Question over here? What was the biggest animal that you have worked with? Uh, the biggest was three and a half tons of elephant. Wow. Yeah, she was about as, bi as big as this studio is wide. She was three and a half tons, but she'd actually probably lost about a ton and a half of weight through her illness. So she would have been uh, a, um, a lot bigger. It was a, that was a long job. Oh, that was a long well, job. And very sad because... When I was a student, I was an elephant keeper for oh, a while. Right. And elephants and their keepers get very attached to each other, so it's, it's, it was a quite a sad, uh, sad job to have to do. We've got a, another question over there. What was the most unusual disease you've worked on? Oh, that's a very Ooh. good question. The most Ooh. unusual disease you've worked on, Alan? Most unusual disease. This one's a mystery. This one here uh, is a bit of a mystery. I haven't worked on it much. It happens in people... And it happens in dogs, interestingly enough. And what happens is the bones start to become very, very thick. Lots of new bone is formed around the outside. The joints are OK, but the bones... So the, the leg 
of the of, or the arms of people, the bones become at least half as thick again. And it's a very unusual disease um, because the problem isn't with the bone. I mean, the problem is the bone to some extent, but sitting in the chest, there's usually a small tumour, minding its own business, not causing any problem in the chest, but producing this on the legs. And we have absolutely no idea why it does that. If you operate and take the tumour away, that'll go away. There are groups looking at it, it's not my research, it's others, trying to work out. But these cases are so unusual, it's very difficult to get enough to actually do any meaningful study on. So it's a very, very strange disease. Lovely question. So this could be something, that if we've got any budding pathologists, the next generation of veterinary pathologists yeah. in the audience, this could be something that you guys could answer. We've got another question down at the front here. Two, two questions. Yeah. Um, uh, one is, because you work on such a variety of animals, mm. where do you start and, and how much of it is generic between, you know, the difference between a, a whale and a field mouse must be massive. So how, how do you start a particular case? And the second question, I'd love to hear a bit more about why you're working on Parkinson's, because it's got nothing to do with animals. Can I answer the second one first? Well, the first research... No, the second piece of research I did was on meningitis in pigs, as it happened. So having done work on meningitis in pigs, working out how meningitis is actually caused, I got hired to work in a human hospital uh, working on human meningitis. So whilst I was there, mad cow disease happened. So would I please now go, as one of the few people who specialise as a vet in looking at brain pathology, would I go and work on mad cow disease? And so my research was, how do the nerve cells die in mad cow disease? And it's pretty much, I believe, the same way that we think brain cells die in Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. So by looking at how things happen, you can start crossing a number of boundaries. And that comes back to your first question about generic things. There's only so many things that can go wrong. There's only so many ways that a tissue or a cell can respond to that injury. So a lot of it is generic. So I can look at human disease. I'm not actually allowed to do pathology on human beings because you have to be a doctor to do that. But I can study the diseases in a, in a research lab. So you're going from taking, taking what we know about animals yeah. and, and the mechanisms there and then translating it onto um, what might happen in people. Because yep. we are, after all, animals too. We are just another mammal. We walk on two legs rather than four. We have a rather curious lifestyle. But apart from that, pretty much the same. When you're talking about the building blocks of life yeah. and we're talking about, well, young creatures, really, to yes. start okay. off with, what, what kind of things can go wrong? Well, I think we've all heard of genes truly the, the DNA, the building block. And the DNA, if you like, is the information. And that information has to be translated into proteins that will then control how the body is put together. So as an animal develops, whether those blocks, as, you divide, as cells divide, all these building blocks need to divide and be shared between all the other cells. And sometimes that goes wrong. Right. Um, so we have examples here where either the animal is born with a gene that is faulty, a piece of DNA that isn't what it should be, or somewhere in development something has gone wrong. 
a signal between two cells has gone wrong, so they then don't do what they're supposed to do. So either there's something wrong with, with the instructions, mm. with the, the yeah. DNA itself, yeah. or there's something wrong with how that's been the instruction trans is translated. Trans translated. Yeah. Have you got anything that demonstrates that for us? Yes. So if we look at this cat and count how num number of claws it has on the end of its feet, of course there should be five. This cat's got six. So somewhere along the line, a signal has gone wrong to produce a sixth digit. And that actually could be in the gene, or it could be a fault in translation. Um, in this country, we produce about 20 million lambs a year. And it's not uncommon to find lambs with more than four legs. That's a signal gone wrong. So we get these sorts of things happening from time to time. That cat, it couldn't care less whether it's got six claws or not. And in most cases, the lambs tend not to do so well. Uh, four legs usually work fine. The fifth or sixth leg, maybe not so well. The farmer keeps it going, and if it fattens, then that's fine. And if it doesn't, um, then it doesn't. So when you get these, these changes, mm -hmm. when you get these, these problems arising, it's not always catastrophic? Not always. It can be. I've got a little example here. It's been fairly catastrophic in this case, because this is a, a little puppy... And we've got this much smaller thing underneath. Uh, and this is a mummified fetus. So somewhere during its development, something went catastrophically wrong and everything stopped. Now, trying to find out why that was mummified is often very, very difficult indeed. So things can go catastrophically wrong. Or the animal can be born and survive for a while. So this little puppy here has a cleft palate. The roof of your mouth is an arch, and the tissue comes in from the left and comes in from the right and should meet in the middle to complete that arch. And what's happened in this puppy here, it hasn't met in the middle. Now, for young animals trying to suckle milk, the mouth has to get hold of the teat and suck. But if there's an air coming in from the nose, it can't get the suction. So these puppies don't suckle properly, and unfortunately many of them die as young puppies, because they just can't suckle properly. So those are some examples of problems that have arisen due to maybe genetic changes. Probably, yeah. Accidental genetic Acc changes. Not much you can do about those. Right. Let me just talk about breeding animals. Manx cats come in four, four varieties. There's the rumpy, the stumpy, the longy, and the rumpy riser. And the true Manx cat has no tail bones at all. That's the rumpy. And all rumpies have spina bifida. Rumpies bunny hop. They don't walk like a normal cat. They sort of hop like rabbits. So in breeding a Manx cat, which is a breed that's been around for 100 years or more, they've actually bred a defect. Does it bother the cat? Not particularly. There's a bit of controversy about breeding dogs and certain dog breeds at the moment. So we all know the British Bulldog. So we have a bred a dog with a squashed nose. And the reason that most Bulldogs run around with their tongue hanging out is because the tongue is too big for the mouth. So we have bred a dog that's tongue hangs out, it wheezes because it can't breathe properly, and it's got short, stumpy legs so it can't run properly either. We have designed the dog that way. And the controversy now is that almost certainly you can't breed a bulldog unless you do caesareans. Puppies do not come out normally. So the only way to maintain this breed is to do caesareans on them. 
And there is a clear question whether that is right and proper thing to be doing. So it's interesting, by breeding for a particular look, yeah. we've achieved what we wanted physically on the outside, but actually... Deformed the animal in the process. And almost to the point where, if that was in nature and evolution was allowed to have its usual effects, the bulldog would die out. It's us that keep it going. Alan Williams with Glass on the diseases and developmental disorders a veterinary pathologist may encounter. Lastly, Kimberly Freeman from the Royal College of Pathologists explains why they thought it was so important to include veterinary pathology in National Pathology Week. Well, this week we've had over 525 events happening across the country. It's been really, really good. We've had events for school children, we've had events for pathologists and GPs, and we've had events for A-level students all across the country. The theme this year has been mother and baby, and yet... I find myself here at the Natural History Museum looking at animal bones. How does this fit in? Well, this year we're very keen to sort of highlight the scope of pathology and absolutely everything that feeds into such an amazing subject. Um, We've been focusing a lot, we've had events on pathology for pregnant women, but we've also wanted to highlight the scope of pathology. And so veterinary pathology is not something people think of when they think of pathology, so that was a really good idea to have an event on that. And was there anything in particular that we've seen today that caught your interest personally? Personally, I thought it was amazing to see some of the surgery that's performed on animals. You think of it as just a human thing. I've just seen a dog femur with a, an artificial hip replacement, which I thought was something they only do on humans, so that was really interesting. Kimberly Freeman from the Royal College of Pathologists. Well, that's it for my personal picks of the Pathology Podcasts. You can find the complete podcasts from the last three years of Pathology Week online at thenakedscientists.com slash pathology and find out about other pathology events at nationalpathologyweek.org. We'll be back next week looking at the human body. We'll find out why it's so important that people donate their bodies to science. We'll discuss dissection with medical students and explore how engineers can help to replace the bits of the body that wear out. If you've got any questions or comments for us, get them in to chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at thenakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.